Friends, let us pray. Silence in us any voice but your own, gracious God. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to listen. Teach us how to be open to your spirit. Teach us your word, that it may be a lively presence in our lives. For we pray in Christ's sake. Amen. Our gospel lesson comes from the gospel according to Matthew, two portions of the 13th chapter. Let us hear God's word. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds. When it is grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, who went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left that place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I often wonder as I drive up and down East Avenue on a Saturday how many weddings are happening in all of those churches. Or how many weddings happen across the nation on any given day, any given Saturday, a bunch, I bet. And I bet that a large proportion of those weddings include a reading of 1 Corinthians 13, what I sometimes call the love chapter. <laughs> you know it well. It certainly wasn't written with weddings in mind, but rather to a small struggling, sometimes conflicted church in Corinth. Nonetheless, these words, especially when they are not overly sentimentalized, are spot on at a wedding. The greatest of these is love. 
Likewise, I don't know how many funerals or memorial service happened in Rochester this past week. I know at least of a couple or across the nation. Some, I bet. And I equally bet that some proportion of those funerals or memorial services, like 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding, included a reading of Romans 8, which Ernest just shared. And you know it well as well. Now the letter to the church at Rome was written by the Apostle Paul kind of to pave his way for a visit to a religious community he had never seen or visited before. And though it appears as the first of Paul's biblical letters in the New Testament, because it's the longest, it was likely the last letter written entirely by Paul's hand and from his mind. Romans has two audiences or rather kind of two segments of the same audience at this little baby church in Rome. Paul needed to say to this new church that it was called to welcome Gentiles, those who did not enter it through Judaism, therefore those who did not practice Jewish law, but he also needed to embrace the continuing validity of Israel and God's purpose. So a new church made up of at least two different diverse communities coming together. The gospel was for all humanity, Paul insisted. It was a great theological affirmation, but it was also a good organizational one as well. All are welcome, past experiences, past credentials notwithstanding. Romans becomes Paul's kind of tour de force in terms of big ideas, justification and grace and law. But it's also a great example of how Paul adapted Greco-Roman rhetoric to make his case. The way he spoke to this new audience was the way they understood and received ideas. Now our passage this morning from Romans begins at verse 26 of chapter 8. You can find it on page 158 of your pew Bibles, and in fact in a few minutes we're going to read together from it. But the section really begins a few verses earlier at verse 18. Paul is making the case for God as we know God through Jesus Christ. He writes, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. That's the case. The sufferings we endure, the pain, the challenge, the hardship, the heartache, in fact, that all creation endures will be redeemed in hope. Paul calls that glory. And until glory comes, we wait. We wait in patience and in hope. But we do not wait alone. Not only do we have fellow travelers with whom to wait, but the, the Spirit helps us. And when we don't know how to wait, when we don't know how to be patient, even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit helps us. The Spirit helps us with sighs too deep for words. 
God is present in our deepest needs, our needs, the needs of the world, and when we cannot find the words or even the energy to muster a prayer, the Spirit sighs with us in solidarity, the Spirit groans with us in compassion. Charles Cusa writes that the Spirit is joining voices with the moans of the terminally ill who long for death, with the angry raging of the oppressed who seek freedom, with the whimpers of the hopeless who have no strength left to cry. When we have no capacity, no energy, no words, no hope, the Spirit intercedes for us which was good news to the Roman church some 2,000 years ago. It remains good news to this church now. Solidarity, compassion, hope. These are the things we need as we live our lives and whatever hardships and challenges we face, which is extraordinary, both in how particular is the focus each of us, all of us, little old us, and also how cosmic is the scale. This is all creation. Then the familiar and iconic words that follow, beginning at verse 31 of chapter 8. Catherine Grieve writes that Paul is doing two things here. He is exhibiting a deep sense of realism and a deeply confident trust. Realism means that suffering continues. Gribe writes that Paul does not expect any magical protection from the normal hardships of life. In fact, this week I've been thinking quite a bit about Paul's list, a list you can find beginning on verse 35. As I read this list again and again and again, I thought of how many, how many of you, how many of us are facing hardship or distress. I thought about your and our life stories, deteriorating health, physical and mental and emotional and spiritual health, the the fraying and ending of relationships Jobs that offer little satisfaction, no job at all. Perhaps I I thought about chemotherapy and addiction and depression and memory loss. I thought about all who are caring for declining parents or spouses. I thought this week, as a straight white male, about what persecution looks like. I thought about the persecution of transgender Americans who were told by their government that they are unqualified to serve in the military, or LGBTQ Americans who heard an argument from their government that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 does not apply to them. I thought about peril or sword, about shots ringing out or stabbings in American urban centers across the country and in our very own, including places just a few miles from here. Thought about missiles being tested or refugees being threatened or 
vulnerable of all kinds being abused, hardship, suffering, peril, sword. Paul's realistic. These things will happen in the year 50 and in the year 2017. What gives us hope is that the Spirit intercedes for us and perseveres with us so that none of those things will ever separate us from the love of Christ. Now that doesn't mean we accept these things happily or passively. I can't believe that's what God wants. We seek to persevere in the face of hardship. We resist persecution. We fight. We are resilient. We are enduring for ourselves and for others. We never do it alone. We do it with each other. And when we can't do it, when deep fatigue sets in, the Spirit does it for us and with us with sighs too deep for words. We will always, always have the love of God on our side. And then this. Let's read it together, if you can find it, verses 38 and 39 of chapter 8, beginning at the, the bottom of the right-hand column on page 158. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Paul's faith. That's our faith at its highest and its best. In language nearly a century old, theologian Karl Barth writes that if we fix our eyes upon the place where the course of the world reaches its lowest point, where its groanings are most bitter, we shall encounter there Jesus Christ, the transformation of all things. Catherine Grieb writes that Paul considers a long list of things that might seem more powerful than God's love, including death and calls on his hearers to trust the reality of God. It's a powerful progression. It is poignant in its clear and realistic understanding of human suffering and soaring in its capacity to place that suffering in a cosmic context. We will be set free from our bondage, whatever that bondage is. And until we are, God, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the ongoing presence of the Spirit, will be with us, abiding, strengthening us in perseverance and resilience. Nothing ultimately can condemn us. God intercedes for us in love, and nothing can separate us from that love. Paul was convinced of that. And even at those points where we are not convinced, where we cannot be convinced, we wait. 
with others, we wait in trust and hope by the power of the Spirit. Hear these words from the poet Susan Paolo Cherwin. In deepest night and darkest days, when harps are hung, no songs we raise, when silence must suffice as praise, yet sounding in us quietly, there is the song of God. When friend was lost, when love deceived, dear Jesus wept, God was bereaved, so with us in our grief, God grieves, and round about us mournfully there are the tears of God. When through the waters winds our path around us, pain, around us death, deep calls to deep, a saving breath, and found beside us, faithfully, there is the love of God. There is the love of God. Amen.